Good morning and welcome to Christ Central. My name is Owen. I get to serve as one of the pastors uh, here. And so good to see people in the room. It's, uh, I feel like we're an actual church again. And we have a long way to go, but it's so good to see real faces, smiling faces. I'm sure you're smiling underneath those masks, uh, but it's good to see you. Uh, well, if you're joining us for the first time today, we're currently in a new sermon series uh, on the Gospel of Luke, which we're calling Following Jesus through the book of Luke. You see, in this series, what we're going to do is we're going to follow Jesus around as he moves through uh, the book of Luke, and we're going to watch what he does, and we're going to listen to what he says. And as we watch his actions and listen to his teachings, my hope and my prayer is that we would not only find Jesus beautiful and compelling, but that we would also be more certain and assured of the things that we've been taught and believe, namely that Jesus really is the Son of God and the Savior of the world. And as we follow Jesus through Luke, may we learn what it means to follow Jesus through life. The title of today's sermon is The Birth of Jesus Foretold. So if you have your Bibles, turn with me to Luke chapter 1, and we're going to read from verse 26 to 38. Now last week, we read the story of how the angel Gabriel appeared to Zechariah to announce to him the birth of his son, John. Today, we're going to read the story of how that same angel, Gabriel, appeared to Mary to announce to her the birth of her son, Jesus. Friends, people of God, this is the word of our God. Please give it your careful attention. And in the sixth month, the angel Gabriel was sent from God to a city of Galilee named Nazareth, to a virgin betrothed to a man whose name was Joseph of the house of David. And the virgin's name was Mary. And he came to her and said, Greetings, O favored one, the Lord is with you. But she was greatly troubled at the saying and tried to discern what sort of greeting this might be. And the angel said to her, Do not be afraid, Mary, for you have found favor with God. And behold, you will conceive in your womb and bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus. He will be great and will be called the Son of the Most High. And the Lord God will give to him the throne of his father David, and he will reign over the house of Jacob forever, and his kingdom there will be no end. And Mary said to the angel, How will this be, since I am a virgin? And the angel answered her, The Holy Spirit will come upon you, and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. Therefore, the child to be born will be called Holy, the Son of God. And behold, your relative Elizabeth in her old age has also conceived a son. And this is the sixth month with her who was called barren. For nothing will be impossible with God. And Mary said, Behold, I am the servant of the Lord. Let it be to me according to your word. And the angel departed from her. This is the word of the Lord. Amen. Now Luke presents the infancy narratives of John and Jesus side by side so that we might see the similarities and the differences between uh, John and Jesus. Now the birth of John is going to be a miracle because he's going to be born to an old barren woman, which is almost impossible. 
But the birth of Jesus is going to be an even greater miracle because he's going to be born to a young virgin, which is impossible. John is going to be filled with the Holy Spirit in his mother's womb, but Jesus is going to be conceived by the Holy Spirit in his mother's womb. Luke shows us that John is great, but Jesus is even greater still. Now, did you know that though John appears in the New Testament, he actually belongs in the Old Testament? You see, John is in the line of the Old Testament prophets like Elijah, Ezekiel, and Jeremiah. In fact, John is the last and the greatest Old Testament prophet. Zechariah said that John will be called the prophet of the Most High. And Jesus himself said that John is more than a prophet and that there is none greater than John that has been born among women. But even as the last and the greatest Old Testament prophet, John is still only a forerunner who prepares the way for Jesus. That's because Jesus is the Son of God and the Savior of the world. John himself will later say that, he is, um, that Jesus is mightier than he is and that he is not worthy to untie the strap of Jesus' sandal. So from the very beginning, Luke wants us to know that this Jesus that he's writing about in his book is someone uh, that deserves our most careful consideration. And if Jesus really is who Luke says he is, then Jesus doesn't just deserve our careful consideration, but he also deserves our worship and our adoration. You see, friends, if Jesus isn't the Son of God, if he isn't the Savior of the world, then you can forget about Jesus. Who cares? But if Jesus really is who Luke says he is, then that changes. He should be worshipped. He should be adored. He should be trusted. And he should be followed as Lord. Now, the story of Jesus begins with the story of the angel who appeared to his mother who is going to uh, hear the announcement that Jesus is going to be born to her. And our story today uh, divides neatly into three sections or three parts. First, the appearance to Mary. Second, the annunciation to Mary. And third, the response of Mary. Now, first, let's talk about the appearance uh, to Mary, verses 26 to 29. In, the, in verses 26 and 27, uh, we're told that God sent the angel Gabriel to a city called Nazareth and to a young, poor virgin who lived there named Mary. God chose Mary, a poor, young girl who lived in a small and insignificant town called Nazareth. Now, Nazareth was a small, obscure city. Uh, it's not even mentioned in the Old Testament like some of the other more prominent and important cities in, in Israel like Jerusalem and Jericho, which are mentioned in the Old Testament, but Nazareth is never mentioned in the Old Testament. Nazareth was such an unknown place that Luke had to tell us where it was. It was in the region of Galilee. Now, did you know... Um, <clears throat> That for people who um, outside of uh, uh, who live in Northern Virginia, nobody knows or cares about where Centerville is. Now, if you live in Centerville and if you love Centerville, I'm sorry, but it's true. When I lived in LA, I never even heard of Centerville, right? So when I'm outside of Virginia attending pastors' conferences and people ask me, "Hey, where are you from?" I never say I'm from Centerville. 
expecting them to know where Centerville is. What, how do I answer? I usually say I'm from D.C. or I'm from a small city just outside of D.C. Why do I say that? Because everyone knows where D.C. is because D.C. is a prominent, important, and well-known city, whereas Centerville is a small city that nobody has ever heard of outside of Northern Virginia. In the same way, Luke had to explain where a small and obscure city like Nazareth was. It was a small city in the region of Galilee because everyone knew where Galilee was, but nobody knew where Nazareth was. You see, Nazareth was, Nazareth was so small and so insignificant that Nathaniel asked in John's gospel, can anything good come out of Nazareth? And like Nazareth, Mary was small and insignificant, at least in the eyes of the world. As a poor young girl, Mary was someone that would have been marginalized, would have been overlooked in a very traditional and patriarchal culture. There was nothing impressive, nothing significant about Mary. She was just, again, a small, uh, a poor young girl from a small town that no one would have found interesting. And though Mary was nothing special in the eyes of the world, and yet God chose her. If people had to guess who God would choose to be the earthly mother of his son Jesus, nobody would have guessed that it would have been Mary. But God loved Mary. God chose Mary. And so Gabriel appeared to Mary, and what did he say? Oh, favored one, the Lord is with you. Now, from the very beginning of the book, uh, Luke introduces one of his most dominant themes, which Bible scholars call Lucan themes, right? So Lucan themes are themes in Luke. And this theme is this, um, God's love for the marginalized. In Luke's book, there are four groups of people who are marginalized that God cares about and loves. It's women, children, the poor, and social outcasts. And in our story today, by choosing Mary, we see God's love and concern for the poor. You see, friends, everything surrounding the birth of Jesus tells us that God chooses, loves, cares for, and honors the poor. You see, nine months later, on the day that Jesus was born, who did God send the multitude of angels to to announce the birth of his son? Was it to rich people who lived in luxurious homes? Was it to uh, powerful rulers and government officials who worked in the halls of government? Was it to the religious leaders who worked in the temple? No. It was to poor shepherds who worked out in the fields who were keeping watch over their flock by night. It was to them that God sent his angels to announce the birth of his son. And here, my friends, is the most astounding and the most amazing detail I think that we often overlook. God chose to have his son born into a poor family. God could have chosen a rich couple to have his son born into, a rich couple who could have afforded a nice sanitary and, and clean and hygienic room for his son to be born and not in a dirty, unhygienic stable surrounded by barn animals. Instead, and, and to our great surprise, God chose a poor couple to be the earthly parents of his son, Jesus. You see, Joseph and Mary 
were poor. They were financially and materially poor. And we know this because when they would take Jesus uh, to the temple after his birth and, and to present the offering, do you know what offering they presented? They presented the sacrifice or the offering of poor people two young pigeons because they couldn't afford the more expensive sacrifices like a sheep or a goat that the rich people could afford. Now you would think if there was ever a time to break the, uh, break the bank and splurge and spend all of your money to, to buy an expensive sacrifice, you would think it would be for the birth of the Son of God. But they had no bank to break because they were so poor. Friends, as we continue to read through the Gospel of Luke, we cannot miss this. God cares about and honors the poor. God honored the poor by, by announcing the, the greatest news in human history, the birth of his son, not to the rich, but to the poor. And most of all, God honored the poor by having his own son, Jesus, born into and raised by a poor family. Martin Luther, the great reformer, said this, God might have gone to Jerusalem and picked out Caiaphas' Caiaphas's daughter, who was fair, rich, clad in gold, embroidered raiment, and attended by a retinue of maids in waiting. But God preferred a lowly maid from a mean town. Friends, I believe that there's an important application here for us, especially as a church that is mostly made up of highly educated, middle to upper class, generally wealthy Christians. As highly educated people who strive to be successful and wealthy, and let's face it, we all strive to be successful and wealthy. There's nothing wrong with that. But as those who are generally successful and wealthy, we are tempted, are we not, to look down on the poor. We're tempted to dislike the poor and to want to distance ourselves and our children from the poor. If we're honest, we don't want the poor to move into our neighborhoods because that might bring down the value of our homes or make our neighborhoods less safe and less desirable. And if we're being really honest, we don't want to be around the poor. We don't even like seeing the poor. We don't like seeing poor people standing on street corners asking for money. But God loves and honors the poor. God did not distance himself from the poor. In fact, when God moved into the world, he didn't move into the rich part of town. He moved into the poor part of town. And he moved in with a poor family. Put it this way. If God were to send his son today, it would probably not be to a rich couple who lives in a mansion in Great Falls, but probably to a poor family that lives in affordable housing in, in Falls Church. Now, let me also say this. I am not saying that it is wrong or sinful to be rich and to live in a nice home somewhere in Great Falls. I'm not saying that. Wealth is a gift and a blessing from God and it is to be received with gratitude and joy and to be enjoyed and to be shared with others. But as Christians, we must resist the temptation of turning our wealth into an idol that we worship and hoard for ourselves. So let me just say that. But here is the wondrous and amazing scandal of the gospel. 
When God came into the world, he identified with the poor, not the rich. When God came to live among people, he lived among the poor and not the rich. And the rest of the New Testament repeats this theme of God's choice and love of the poor. James says in his letter, Listen, my beloved brothers, poor in the world to be rich in faith and heirs of the kingdom, which he has promised to those who love him. Our culture loves and celebrates the rich while ignoring, neglecting, and even despising the poor. But God does not do that. God loves and cares for and honors the poor. And if God loves and cares for and honors the poor, then so must we as Christ followers. Because the poor are loved and honored by God, because the poor are created in the image of God, we are called to love and honor the poor. To be godly means to be like God. And if God loves and honors the poor, then we must love and honor the poor if we want to be godly, if we want to be like God. Friends, Jesus said that how we treat the poor is how we treat him. Jesus said, whatever you do to the least of these, you have done unto me. And whatever you have not done to the least of these, you have not done unto me. How we treat the poor is how we treat Jesus. Friends, I think some of us, maybe many of us, need to repent. I know that I need to repent. If we have disliked or even disdain the poor in our hearts. If we have wanted to distance ourselves from the poor because we thought somehow that they were beneath us. If we have wanted to avoid the poor because we thought they were uh, dangerous or undesirable, then we need to repent of our sinful and ungodly feelings and biases against the poor that we have harbored in our hearts. And we need to believe the gospel not only for the forgiveness of our sins, but also for our sanctification, that the Holy Spirit might renew and change us so that we might learn to love and honor the poor more and more, to be more like God. Again, to be godly means to be like God. God loves and honors the poor. To be godly means to love and honor the poor. J.C. Ryle, the English pastor, said this, Let us beware of despising poverty in others and of being ashamed of it if God lays it upon ourselves. The condition of life which Jesus voluntarily chose ought always to be regarded with holy reverence. The common tendency of the day to bow down before rich men and to make an idol out of money ought to be carefully resisted and discouraged. The example of our Lord is sufficient answer to a thousand groveling maxims about wealth which pass current among men. Though he was rich, yet for our sakes he became poor. So in verses 26 to 29, we have the appearance to Mary. In verses 30 to 37, we have the annunciation to Mary. So the angel who appeared to Mary had an announcement for Mary. 
And it really was an unbelievable announcement. Gabriel told Mary that she would have a son and then ordered her to call his name Jesus, which means God saves, and that her son would be no ordinary son, but would really be the son of God, the son of the Most High God, and that he would be the promised king in the line of David, and that his kingdom would last forever. Now, I'm sure that's a lot for a 14-year-old girl to take in, right? First of all, uh, she was probably freaked out that an angel appeared to her. On top of that, the angel tells her that she's going to have a son, but her son is really going to be the son of God. That's probably shocking, right? Mary was probably thinking, what is going on? Why me? What's, what's happening here? And to the staggering announcement, Mary asked, how can this happen? Because I'm a virgin. Now, Mary understood basic biology. She knows that uh, the only way a woman can get pregnant is through a sexual relationship with a man, but she's a virgin. She's never had a sexual relationship with a man, so she does not know how it's possible for her to have a baby. And the angel Gabriel answered her legitimate and reasonable question by telling her that she would become uh, pregnant by the power of the Holy Spirit. In verse 35, uh, the angel Gabriel said, the Holy Spirit will, Spirit will come upon you and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. Therefore, the child born to you will be called Holy, the Son of God. It would be the Holy Spirit, not a man, who would cause Mary to conceive and become pregnant. Now, before Mary can say that it was impossible for a virgin to conceive, Gabriel preemptively said, for nothing will be impossible with God. For nothing will be impossible with God. Does that phrase sound familiar to you? It should, right? You see, those are the exact same words that the Lord spoke to Sarah when she laughed when God told her that she would have a baby in her old age as a barren woman. The only thing more impossible than an old barren woman having a baby is a young virgin having a baby. That's more impossible. But nothing is impossible with God. If God can give a baby to an old barren woman, God can also give a baby to a young virgin. And God will do what he said he will do. Even a virgin will have a baby because nothing is impossible with God. And friends, I don't want you to miss this connection. Just as Sarah became the mother of Israel by the miraculous power of God, so Mary will now become the mother of spiritual Israel, the church of Christ, through the miraculous power of God. Uh, an important and fundamental doctrine of Christianity is what is known as the virgin birth of Jesus Christ. And it's based on our text today. The Apostles' Creed, one of the oldest Christian creeds, teaches this. I believe in Jesus Christ, who was conceived by the Holy Spirit and born of the Virgin Mary. This doctrine teaches that Jesus was conceived not by a man, but by the Holy Spirit. Therefore, Mary was still a virgin when she gave birth to Jesus, and that's why we call it the virgin birth. And, and let me tell you why this is so important. It's important because it teaches us that Jesus 
was the only person in human history who was born without a sinful nature like the rest of humanity. Ever since Adam and Eve and ever since their fall, every single human being has been born with a sinful and corrupt human nature. And that's why we sin because we, have, we all have sinful natures. But Jesus was conceived by the Holy Spirit. He will be holy as verse 34 says, and that means that Jesus is the only human being in the history of the world that has been born without a sinful nature. And that's why Jesus never sinned in his life. He's the only one in human history to never sin. And the gospel tells us that we needed Jesus to do that as our Savior, to earn a perfect righteousness by never sinning, and then to impute his perfect righteousness to us so that we can be saved by his righteousness because we don't have any of our own. And as we put our faith in Jesus Christ, his perfect spotless righteousness is imputed to us, it's credited to us. And what saves us is not our righteousness, but the perfect righteousness of Christ. And that's why this is so important, because it pertains directly to the gospel. Now, there's another crucial and, 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 and very important Christian doctrine that arises out of our text, and that's the whole uh, doctrine of what we call the incarnation. The incarnation simply means that God became a man, that God came and took upon himself human flesh. That's what that means simply. But more profoundly, the incarnation means the creator became the creature. The infinite became finite. The immortal became mortal. The invincible became vulnerable, even able to die. In fact, the omnipotent became impotent because there is nothing more impotent and powerless than a newborn baby that needs to have everything done for it. The, incarna the incarnation means simply and profoundly that the most high became the most low. The doctrine of the incarnation is crucial because the gospel depends on it. God became a man so that God could die as a man in the place of man as a substitute for man. God became a man so that God could take the wrath and the judgment and the condemnation that we deserved so that we might be forgiven and saved from sin, death, and hell. You see, friends, the most high became the most low so that we who are the most low of sinners might become the sons and daughters of the most high God. And what kind of God does that? What kind of God becomes a baby, becomes vulnerable, and even willingly dies for the people who have sinned against him? What kind of God would do that? The God of the Bible did that. And his name is Jesus, which means God saves. And God did that because of his great and steadfast love for us. Jesus was born in poverty, and then he died in disgrace on the cross. And he did all of that for you and for me. So great is his love for us. You know, some of us, wonder, does anyone love me enough to be willing to die for me? We look at our spouses, we look at our parents, we look at our children, we look at our friends, and we wonder if anyone in this world would love us enough 
to give his life or her life for us. And many of us feel like we don't have that. But the gospel tells us that there is one who loved us so much that he willingly and joyfully laid down his life for us. Jesus raises his hand and says, I do and I did. I do love you to the point of dying for you. In fact, I did die for you. That's how much I love you. Friends, in the gospel, we have a friend who would be willing to give his life for us, and his name is Jesus. So the angel who appeared to Mary made a staggering announcement to Mary that she would have a baby boy and that her boy would be the son of God. And lastly, we see Mary's response to this announcement, and we have it in one verse, verse 38. She says, or she said, I am the Lord's servant. May it be to me as you have said. Mary called herself the servant of the Lord, and she said that, and she was ready to completely and totally submit to God's will for her life. She will have her baby. She will call him Jesus, and she will be his mother, just as God has willed for her, no matter what that means. Now, friends, we need to see and appreciate Mary's courageous submission to God. You see, Mary lived in a traditional culture, and she knew what would happen to her and to her reputation if she had this baby. People would assume one of two things about Mary. One, either she had sex with her husband before they were married, which is sinful and scandalous, or two, she was unfaithful to Joseph and had an affair, which is even more sinful and even more scandalous. Mary knew no one would believe her. I'm a virgin, but I'm pregnant. Holy Spirit's fault. How many people would buy that story? No one was going to buy that story. Her family and her friends aren't going to buy that story. Her, her, her fiancé wasn't going to buy that story. And Joseph didn't buy that story. And we know that because in Matthew's gospel, we're told that Joseph decided to quietly divorce her and to leave her. And he would have, unless an angel appeared to Joseph and told her, hey, what Mary told you is true. What is growing inside of your fiancé Mary is because of the Holy Spirit, not because of another man. But you have to understand, friends, Mary was ready and willing to be the Lord's servant and to do whatever the Lord asked of her, even if it meant that she would suffer disgrace and shame for following God. Mary's submission and obedience to God was not only complete, but it was also courageous because she was willing to experience personal suffering and shame for the sake of embracing God's will for her life. And even though Mary knew what others would think about her, that either she was a liar or worse, an adulteress, Mary knew who she was. She was the Lord's servant. She was the one that was favored by God, and the Lord was with her. And for Mary, knowing what God thought about her was enough, despite what everyone else in her society would have thought about her. For Mary, God's thought of her was more important than people's thoughts of her. So what, what's the takeaway? I need to wrap this up. 
Luke wants us to see the contrast uh, between Zechariah's response to the news from the angel and Mary's response to the news from the angel. Zechariah, he's the priest. He's the religious professional. He's one of the spiritual leaders of Israel. And Mary is this ordinary girl from nowhere. If anything, we would expect Zechariah to respond with faith and submission and for Mary to respond with doubt and disbelief. Instead, we see the very opposite. Zechariah the priest responds with doubt, while Mary the virgin responds with faith, submission, and obedience. So who is the truly faithful one in our story? Is it the religious leader or this ordinary teenaged girl? Now let me ask you, as you hear about Mary's baby, being the son of God and the king who will reign forever, how are you responding? Are you responding like Zechariah or are you responding like Mary? Are you responding with doubt and disbelief or are you responding with faith and submission? Luke wants you to respond today like Mary with faith, submission, and obedience. And let me close with this. If you are a Christ follower, let me ask you, when was the last time you said about yourself, I am the Lord's servant, either to yourself or to other people? When was the last time you've said to God with all of your heart, may your will be done in my life and not mine? When was the last time you gave yourself to Christ in this kind of total and complete surrender and embracing God's will for your life, even if it meant suffering, loss, shame, or disgrace. When was the last time you did that? Friends, Mary is not just the mother of Jesus, but she is also a model of what it means to follow Jesus. Today, friends, by the power of the Holy Spirit, may we all respond like Mary, the first model Christian. Amen? Let's pray together. Father in heaven, thank you so much for your word. Thank you that the baby that, it, that, that grew in Mary's womb is the Son of God and the Savior of sinners. And today I pray for everyone in this room and everyone watching at home that we would believe that Jesus is the Son of God, the Son of the Most High God, the Messiah, the King who will reign forever. May we believe that and may we follow him all the days of our lives. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.